Hey everybody, welcome back to Up The Vibe, and today I'm joined by previous guest, Gary Osborne, and also Dr. Manu Seisfade, who has authored a book on the architecture of the Great Pyramid and published several papers together with Robert Schock and Robert Baval. We'll be continuing our discussion from last time on deciphering the so-called Pennison Code that was received by Jim Pennison when he touched the unknown craft during the Rendlesham UFO incident. We will then be focusing on potential connections with the code and Atlantis. How are you both? Fine, Good, thanks. Good to be here. Thank yeah, you for taking here. the time to be on here. Um, it's, it's like, um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to hear hear more about this uh, these connections and this incident. Um, so I thought we'd start a little bit with a recap from last time. It was it was before Christmas. So it was a little while ago that we spoke, Gary. And uh, when yeah. we spoke, we started off by looking at what the the code showed in terms of the coordinate system and then moved on to more focusing on the, the Giza plateau and then the connections that you uh, had discovered to the fine structure constant to a very right. high degree of accuracy. Yeah, it was, um, it was really showing how the code authenticates itself. You know, all the kind of step-by-step -step discoveries I was making up to that point. And, um, it really only came together in 2018 when the latest determination of the fine structure constant came up. And I knew then that the code had authenticated itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to say something about mathematics because this is how it's proven, the code. It uses, whoever devised <clears throat> the code uses mathematics. And that's as objective, objective as you can get. You know, it goes beyond, it goes above and beyond all our kind of emotionally attached or driven kind of beliefs views and uh, opinions so something like this it had to be proven with mathematics you can't refute mathematics you can't argue with it two times two equals four you can't argue with that so it's as clear as that and um i've become kind of weary of the ufo UA, uh, uap phenomenon in general you know and for me this is what's important because it's proven contact with uh well, it demonstrates uh, retrocausality. At the same time, it authenticates itself as a demonstration of retrocausality, that information is being sent back to the past that has an effect on the present, which was in 2018, when that number came up, uh, and perhaps into the future as well. So, um, yeah, to, to me, it's like the jewel in the crown of uh, message authentication, uh, mm -hmm. and it's proof of contact. And if it's proof, if it... I mean, it's authenticated itself, then that means that something unusual and phenomenal happened at Reynoldsham in 1990. So it proves that as well. To me, it does. Yeah. And uh, Manu, do you want to uh, step in and talk a little bit about um, the code, how it gets the fine structure constant and your kind of history in discovering this? Yeah, I've I've learned uh, all of it from Gary. I didn't know anything about <clears throat> the Pendleton code yeah. until a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then Gary brought me up to speed. Um, so I'm coming at this from an outside observer um, with some initiation because of Gary. Um, I think, I think this is uh, just a very interesting piece of ufology. Um, to me, this is special because it's a communication. It's an alleged communication. Um, there is a, a a good provenance to this message because it comes from a, a credible source, Jim Penniston, um, who 
so at at face value at least uh it it should make you stop and take a look at it and consider it no matter how plausible you might think it is um in and then what gary just alluded to is an important piece of this mystery because the code in gary's interpretation proves to the audience to us that it is real and the way it does it is almost it's it's one of the few ways that you could do this unmistakably which is by predicting the future the code says it comes from the future and it actually predicts something that hadn't happened in 1980 that was not going to happen until 2018 and it uses an ingenious way as gary has discovered to to demonstrate its knowledge of the future and that has to do with the fine structure constant, it maps the fine structure constant onto the second pyramid. Uh, it basically maps two megalithic dials onto the Giza plateau. One is the, the values of the fine structure constant expressed as latitudes. And the other is a famous line at Giza, it's called the Giza diagonal, um, described by Egyptologists uh, years ago. And that is a timeline. And the way that time is being mapped by this code is uh, according to Gary's interpretation has to do with precession. Both of these pieces of information are not explicitly mentioned in the code. They are implicitly encoded in the code. And there's a good reason for that. And Gary also just alluded to that and it has to do with the causality problem. So if you send a message from the future into the past, you can't change the past material materially because you would potentially obviate the very future from which you generated that message. Mm -hmm. And so the way that Gary has pieced this together, and my also understanding is that the code does this in a completely different way, in sort of a quantum mechanical way, by, uh, by manipulating probabilistic outcomes, not the outcome itself in a deterministic way, but the outcome in a probabilistic way, which is what quantum mechanics, after all, is all about. And so what it does, it helps the observer to make a certain discovery by giving clues, but it's not a 100% necessity outcome because the observer also has to be knowledgeable. So Gary is one of the world's expert on Giza metrology, on Giza mathematics, on the dimensions. And so it does take someone who is familiar with the numbers with some you know, special numbers that everybody who's in alternative history, for example, will recognize that Giza has always been associated with pi and phi, the qubit, certain numbers, right? So it requires someone like that who's alerted when they see certain numbers. And that's what the code, the way I see it, plays on. It plays on familiarity with certain numbers. And then it takes you there in relatively few steps. And there's confirmation on several levels and that's why it, when it gets complicated but at the end of the day what it means is that it's double and triple stitched that according to how gary interprets this so it makes it it makes it it overcomes the plausibility uh problem that the code has obviously people are going to look at this and saying this is hard to believe this is First, you're saying that this is a message from another intelligence, and then you're saying it comes from the future. So these are two huge barriers to believability. Mm -hmm. And and in the way that Gary pieced this together, if the code was made in the future, 
whoever made the code knew that this was going to be a problem and had to overcome all these problems. So it's an ingenious solution. If it's a real code, okay. it's absolutely brilliant the way it was done. This is how, so this is my observation so far from what I've learned from Gary. Yeah, it's, um, it helps in a way because I think uh, when I started uh, talking to Gary about the code in the last podcast, I did mention why is it not something more um, easy for us to, to, to discern a message, yes. um, you know, who, who, who I am or um, who, who the being was or where they're from, what year and everything. And maybe um, what you're saying uh, kind of makes sense in, this, in the way that if they'd sent that message, um, is the likelihood is that they would have changed the past and it would not have led to the, to the future that they were from. It may have led to a future, but not the future that they were from. And yes. that itself would have meant that, well, it was kind of um, self-defeating in a way. <laughs> yes. So, of course, yeah. you could come <clears throat> say, well, Manu, if you're saying that the code is not being explicit, then how do you know that your interpretation is correct? And so, and of course, my first answer is, I don't know. I'm not the code expert. Gary is the code expert. Mm -hmm. And other others have to judge if they believe, if they can reproduce the same steps when they're being alerted to it. But my personal impression is that what this code has done is to confirm your your the observer's suspicions of certain probable outcomes, right? So there's obviously a host of probable meanings that someone could come up with. But the code takes you down uh, a, a decision tree, so to speak, right? You start at the top and you have all these possible explanations and then you come up, you, you lean towards one explanation and then that explanation gets confirmed and triple confirmed. And that that is what impressed me okay. in terms of what Gary has shown. Yeah, so he there's several re, self-reinforcing uh, pieces of evidence that come out of this code. And one of those things is the processional numbers. And is there any aspect to the code or the, the thinking, the logic behind it, that um, there was a moment in which your kind of a belief in it turned and was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely something that goes on to something. Is there, was there a moment, was there a particular aspect to the code that or the yeah. calculation that did that? Yeah. So, yes, that's a great question. So my to me, I mean, I, you know, I come at this from a science, when you are a pure scientist, like, you know, you're not in applied science, but you are in basic science, which is my background. Um, plausibility is not a, a standard of proof. Uh, if the model can explain the observations, the reproducible observations, then that's a valid scientific model until it's falsified by, by experiments, by experimental outcomes that the model predicts. So this is how you do science. So to me, when I, I, I do not use plausibility to evaluate a model. And the, the nice thing about the model that Gary's proposed is that it does make at the time when I, when you, the time, the, the time when, uh, what you were just asking me, when I decided, yes, this is something potentially real is when the model made a testable prediction. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. At that point, Gary had taken this to its end, to one of its possible ends. And I said, look, people, it doesn't matter if you think this is real, not real. At the end of the day, the code is saying, look, here's, here's point X. Take a look at that. And then, and that will confirm or not if the code is real or not. 
Mm -hmm. um, so in this particular case, what we'll talk about in a few minutes, it has it's the Sphinx. And I came up with I I actually came at this from exactly the same logic. I for my own research uh, with Robert Schock uh, and with Robert Bouval and in also Graham Hancock. So we're all converging on the same prediction that there is something under the Sphinx. And it's an easy experiment to do. And if all of the evidence that we've looked at are correct, if that model that we're proposing is correct, then there should be something under the Sphinx. Um, mm -hmm. And so this a test, it makes a testable prediction. Now, the problem is that people who are not in science and they start arguing with you, they don't understand that this is normal business for scientists. We come up with models all the time, and these models may be plausible, they may be implausible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. As if the model explains, if if the model explains all the observation and it competes with other models, then the way you vet these models is by doing an experiment. That's all we want. We just want to do an experiment mm -hmm. and falsify or confirm. Um, so the answer to your question is yes. When I realized that Gary is actually making a prediction that you can test. I realized that he is just acting like a regular scientist. He looked at the observation, he mm -hmm. took it to its law, one of its potential logical ends, and he made a testable prediction from it. And this is what scientists do every single day. Okay. And um, to, to Gary, uh, I've been thinking a little bit about the calculations and thinking, was there potentially, and um, I'm thinking also about um, a previous podcast with Jimmy Planchette, who said that in some way he felt influenced and I don't know if I, we talked about this maybe before, but do you feel like some of the calculations came to you from some sort of external influence um, or were they, did they come to you kind of quite naturally just through study, studying it? Quite naturally, really, I would say. Yeah. I think it's kind of like a balance between rationality and, and uh, intuition, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of it is intuitive. Um, a lot of the step-by-step the process that I was showing you in those slides on mm -hmm. the last interview, it's, it's intuitive, you know. Um, what I was going to say is it, um, the code uses the fine structure constant to authenticate itself, you know. You don't have to know about the fine structure constant to know about this number because it's the number that's important. It's a 12-digit number, you know, nine decimal place number. Um, but it only that number was only determined in 2018. And the strange thing about the code is that I needed a lot of um, tools and programs and uh, especially the mapping data, the survey mapping data of Giza, the latest survey maps, uh, which were uh, determined by um, Glenn Dash, the Glenn Dash Foundation, his team. And that only really concluded in 2018, which is the same year when this fine structure constant number was determined by physicists. Mm -hmm. So it's like 2018 was kind of like a pivotal year. You got 1980 when the code originated and you got 2018 and it's in the code. I mean, what all the coordinates lead to, especially the Giza coordinates. No, sorry. The Nazca coordinates to Giza leads to this fine structure constant number, which is uh, it's provided by this, you know, the golden cut latitude. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's used in a really ingenious way. It's using the plateau of Giza to communicate this number, to provide, like predict this number using a latitude running through Giza, which actually divides the um, the distance between G1, Great Pyramid in the north and G3 in the south, into the fire ratio proportions of 1 and 0.618. So that in itself, the fire ratio 
mm-hmm. thing with with Giza. I mean, that it's in itself is a is kind of like a major discovery anyway, and that's that came from the code. Mm-hmm. But to then find that the numbers in that latitude uh, in 1980 uh, pro- generates the uh, inverse number defined structure constant, which is one of the most mysterious numbers in physics. That just and it that's why it authenticates itself, and it's also a demonstration of retrocausality. That okay, that's beyond it's beyond coincidence, you know. So, um, what do you think the purpose of the message was to, to both of you? What what do you think the ultimate purpose was? It was it to first to discover something new, or just to authenticate itself and say we're here? No. Yeah, I uh, I was going to say that that's the way it authenticates itself using the fine structure constant. Um, what the fine structure constant is, uh, I was, in fact, let me read this out because I'm actually, this is what Manu sent me and is is right. According to the late astronomer Carl Sagan, the number 137 and the number of decimals following it is the quintessential candidate for the crown jewel of interstellar message authentication because knowledge of it presupposes a state of technology which allows a civilization to measure it. The more accurate the number is in terms of the number of decimals after 137, the more advanced the civilization. Thus, the string of numbers after the period decimal point following the number 137 becomes a measure of the level of knowledge and intelligence. Okay, so we're talking about a 12-digit number, mm-hmm. um, and it's the full number that was uh, determined by physicists in 2018. The last three numbers are, are you know, um, they're probabilistic. Prob- uh, they're, they're within range, put it that way, the last three numbers, like 084. But the full number that was actually published in 2019, it was determined in 2018, but published in 2019. Um, yeah, this 13-digit, uh, sorry, this 12-digit number. So um, <laughs> you, you can't get more detail than that you know what i'm okay. saying something that's mm-hmm. just it's it, and it authenticated so and the thing is is that the timing of it because i found this in in 2019 when i was writing the last chapter of the book i was writing with jim peniston yeah and i was relying on the on the previous determination which was in 2014 and the last three digits of that number was 139 and i was relying on that first of all i was i was writing about this about how the code you know, generates uh, the fine structure constant. Um, but as I said, I was relying on the previous determination. So as I was writing this last chapter and writing this all up, I thought, I wonder if the new determination has been published yet. And this was in May, I think it was May 28th, that I, I thought of looking to see on the internet to see if the uh, new <coughs> determination had come up. And the news t- I found that on Wikipedia, they published it and it was uh, the number, the full 12 digit number that the, you know, the latitude, the golden cut latitude generates. And so the last three digits were the same as what the, the latitude generates. Mm-hmm. So uh, with this news kind of a special moment for you, that kind of a confirmation yeah. moment. Yeah. 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 So I decided to look on the, on Wikipedia, well, on the internet to find it to see if the new determination had come up. That was on the 28th, but the new determination had only just been published on the 26th of May, you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought the timing of all this, it's mm-hmm. that, you factor that into it as well. It's, it's phenomenal. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I knew then that, it, that the coder authenticated itself. 
and it could only do so. This is the other thing, is that in the whole timeline of human history, 1980 was the only year that this demonstration of retrocausality could have been implemented, you know? So uh, yeah, that mind as well. I mean, I think I think Manu will tell you more about that as well. Yeah, yeah. So what's your take on what the message is is uh, is trying to say? Yeah, so my understanding is so far, the code has accomplished three things. And there may be more, but those three things is A, proof that I am a real message. B, uh, establish that time is an is some it has something to do with time and that is expressed through procession so there is a there's a fine structure constant dial megalithic dial there's a time megalithic dial and c to send you to two places the sphinx and the azores this is so okay. far what <clears throat> what the code is telling gary okay in order to get to these three places you have to first learn how the, co the code talks to you so i want to just uh uh, you know, add to something that Gary was just saying. How so? The code does not mention 137. It does not mention the fine structure constant. So people might say, "Well, how do you know that the code uh, is using the fine structure constant to authenticate itself?" Right. And so here is how it's it works. It sends you to places in Giza where 137 is actually an important number. First of all, the Sphinx. The core body of the Sphinx is 137 cubits long. And we know this from Mark Lehner's survey of the Sphinx in, uh, mm -hmm. in the 80s. So this is fairly well known, um, but it's not known to everyone. You know, if you ask most alternative history researchers, most Egyptologists, they will not be able to tell you how long the Sphinx is, but it is out in the literature. So it's something that you have to dig up. The second thing is you can fit the Sphinx 12 times around the pyramid of Khafre. So and 137 is a prime number. So this is an interesting kind of a dilemma. How did the ancient Egyptians choose to make the Pyramid of Khafre 411 cubits on the base, which is three times 137? So 137 sticks out at Giza. Mm -hmm. And that's how the code does it, right? It doesn't say 137. It sends you by using coordinates, by using lines, and the length of these lines have itself, they themselves have certain numerical significances. It sends you to these places, and then, boom, you see the number come up, 137. You see, ah, oh, mm -hmm. 137, that's the fine structure <clears throat> constant. So mm -hmm. what does it want me to do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Now it takes you to the next step. Well, it wants you to fine structure the fine structure constant, meaning it wants, it is saying, I know the, the decimal structure of the constant to eight significant digits. I knew that well, in... No, I to nine decimal places i knew that in, in 1980 mm -hmm. what it would be in 2018 so how does it does how does it do that by basically as you can probably imagine when you're dealing with nine decimal places eight decimal places you're talking about tiny little differences right so if the code wants to make a point you have to magnify the scale so mm -hmm. that even a tiny step, like one ten millionth of a of a of a decimal, becomes a large distance on your dial, and that's exactly what the code does. It sends you to the Khafre pyramid on the baseline, and this is what Gary has shown. And with these latitudes that get that convert to the fine structure constant values with a conversion factor, you 
suddenly you have this magnified dial where these tiny little differences become very significant. So to give you an idea, in 1979, the the known value of the fine structure constant is is seven is uh, seven. I'm sorry. In 1980, apologize. In 1980, four months before Boxing Day, before uh, the the Rendlesham Force incidents yep. occurred, the known value at that point is 17 meters away from the line that Gary's reporting. 17 meters, even though. In terms of decimals, we're talking about a tiny little difference between the values. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is so 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 to finish this. In order to know what this code was supposed to tell you, is you have to first learn the language of the code. You have to first understand how the code is communicating, and this mm -hmm. is the most important thing. And Gary. I think has done that. He's shown that the code talks to you indirectly, and that is because of the causality paradox. Once you figure that out, that it 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 teaches you implicitly, then you go with the then you go with those implicit implications, if you will, and then it'll take you to the places. So what we know right now is it wants to, to take you to the Sphinx and it wants to take you to the Azores. Okay. Yeah, and um, talking about the Azores, shall we uh, dive a bit more into that? Because I think this is a, this is a new new topic that we uh, didn't touch on last time. Does that sound uh, yeah sound sound good? This I think this is what we were going to go into next. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, yeah, you I see, know, there's like several there's several different themes that come out of the code. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and um, this kind of connection between the Sphinx and the Azores is just one of them. Yeah, because another theme is the Giza diagonal processional timeline it points to that as well we won't go into that yet yeah what i found was um and this was after um well the mapping data was available you know the the accurate <clears throat> mapping data that uh, glenn dash and his team provided um and uh, some of it was in 2015 and i think it was all concluded in 2018 but for a, a code that was that originated in 1980 and that you would have to use these tools that only became available, fully available in 2018, that in itself is a, you know, paradox. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, I found that where the Giza coordinates are, the, the location of the Giza, Giza coordinates from the code, that are found in the code, there, it's located between the two large pyramids, G1 and G2, you know, mm -hmm. or Khufu yeah. and Khafre. Is, is it worth bringing up the slide um, that you sent before? Is this a good opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me try and bring those up. Yeah. I think it's the number 16, is it? I think. Yeah, you tell me if I've got the right one. Yeah. Number 16 is this one. Can you see that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you look at that, you think it's a kind of, um, well, what is that telling us, you know? You, you think that if there was coordinates for Giza, it would probably appear at the center of the Great Pyramid or, or the Sphinx. But that seems to be a nondescript location, you see? Mm -hmm. Now, I think in the next one, you, you'll see that it's not a nondescript location. It's very specific, actually, in giving us a lot of different information. Yeah, that's the second one. You see, it's the, the location of the Giza coordinates found in the code are on that line that's... Uh, from the uh, central uh, north base of G2 to the central part of 
the west base of G1. Yeah. Okay. So you can see that. Yeah. So, so this, you know, this, that, that pen is the location where that was given in the code. Um, and this is okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's but, on that line, you know, to, to, to anyone, actually anyone who is uh, who's familiar with Selim Hassan, Joe, uh, this is a very significant spot because Selim Hassan was trying to interpret the meaning of the Sphinx. And uh, he proposed that the Sphinx is sort of a marker, a solstice marker, a sunset marker between the two mountains of the two pyramids. And so that position is basically where the, uh, where the summer solstice sunset occurs between the two pyramids. And Selim Hassan talked about the symbolic meaning of that. So this is highly significant. Mm-hmm. If you if you're familiar even just a little bit with uh, symbolic Egyptology that has to do with sun with the sun, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay. So I think the next slide might give you a bit more information on that. Yeah. So what I did was I show I, I actually determined this point the, the actual midpoint between the two pyramids there, and I thought well you know this is an intuitive kind of step that I took. It seems that you need to draw a line from the uh, Giza, the location of the Giza coordinates to the that point center, you know, that midpoint between the pyramids. Yeah. You see, <clears throat> I think that shows up in the next one. Yeah. So, and then I extended it, and it goes all the way to the Sphinx. Yeah. But the target area on the Sphinx is um, it's not at the middle middle part of the body or on the head. It's just at the part where the of the sphinx where the forepaw the left forepaw yeah meets yep. the shoulder okay now it was only later that i discovered through reading manu's book which is called under the sphinx and i'll, I'll show you that there can you mm-hmm. can you see that uh yeah i'm not sure if it's on the uh uh if the people can see it uh, um that are watching the video because I'm sharing screen, but hopefully they can. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. okay. That's anyway. okay, Gary. That's okay. It's not that important right now. So just you, you talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah, anomaly B, right? Yeah, anomaly yeah. B, which was right. found by uh, Robert Shock, Doctor Robert Shock, and Doctor Thomas Debecky in 1991. They 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 used um, was it refraction tomography scanning, and uh, they were able to determine that there was a a void region just under the left forepaw of the Sphinx. It's, it's, they noticed these voids. There was anomaly A, which is at the front of the paw, and anomaly B, which is on this shoulder area. Mm-hmm. So it was after reading Manu's book in 2021, because he, he made an, a copy available to me, that I discovered now nah, this is what the, um, the Giza coordinates are pointing to. And the reason why I know it's it's pointing to the Sphinx is because it's using a measurement, a distance that you can, um, it provides us with free processional numbers. You know, it uses the British Imperial system, measuring system. It gives us feet, inches and yards uh, in the same distance. You know, if you, I think it's 2160 feet, which you multiply by 12, you get 25920 inches. And if you divide by three, you get 720. And those are all processional numbers. So I knew that that was beyond a coincidence, that it points to that void region called Anomaly B, you know, just where the uh, four, the Gary, four points the shoulder. Gary, I'm sorry, just to make this a little bit more visual, Joe, just imagine the Zodiac constellations. There's 12. Mm-hmm. 
each one of them on average it takes 2160 years for mm -hmm. the the you know at the rate of precession and then if you can mm -hmm. divide each house of the zodiac into four four quadrants then each one of those quadrants would be 540 so I just wanted to, those numbers are all processional yeah, so, because, yeah. yeah. Graham Hancock talks a lot about the procession of that's the equinox right. and that's these numbers right. um, coming yeah. up there. Just to that's quickly right. exactly. ask, this um, number that, uh, this line that uh, where the yellow line joins, is this the golden yeah. cut number? Is that the golden cut? Last no, year? it's got nothing to do, this has got nothing to do with a golden cut. Um, okay. Yeah, I just want to make it clear that the golden <clears throat> cut latitude and the, and the fine structure constant that, that it generates, that, that is how the code authenticates itself. And then after you know that it authenticates itself, has proven itself, then you can come up, then you can find all these other things in the code. And this is just one of them. It's just one of the themes of several that come up that is telling you something. And it's proven it all by through mathematics. So, um, yeah, that, that yellow line, as I said, is a specific, yeah, that, it's okay. That yellow line is, uh, as I said, it's a specific distance that gives you free processional numbers. So you know that it's about procession and you know that this is beyond coincidence that mm -hmm. it was um, intended. And, and so when I, when I read Manu's book, I knew then what it was pointing to. It's pointing to this void region under the left forepaw of the Sphinx mm -hmm. called Anomaly, which they referred to as Anomaly B. And um, I thought that's got to be it. And uh, I, I discussed this with Manu. I mean, we met, Manu and I met up in 2018. And um, it, this book came out in 2021. And it was only then that I realized what this was pointing to, what the Giza coordinates mm -hmm. were pointing to. So, um, but you see that heading line. It's a heading line, okay? That yellow line is a heading line. And it's at a specific uh, degree in azimuth degrees. It's, um, it's 115.41 degrees. As enough, and if you take that heading line and you go in the opposite direction, the same heading line, but mm -hmm. you add one eighty degrees because it's in the opposite direction, it will give you two nine five point four one degrees, and that goes all the way. You find that the cursor, if you use Google Earth, the cursor will take you on that heading line all the way to São Miguel in the uh, Atlantic, which is one of okay. the islands of the Azores. Uh, and uh, the, that island, São Miguel, is only 290 square miles in an ocean that's 14.1 million square miles. So it's like a needle in a haystack. So you can see that all this, the way it all matches up, um, you know, it was intentional. It's not something that is, okay. it goes beyond coincidence. Is there another slide just to demonstrate that? Yeah, or? I think the next slide is is where, um, yeah, that's the uh, that's about the boy tomography scan uh, that uh, Robert Schock and uh, Thomas De Becky had. Okay, uh, they were saying they would be able to determine uh, the anomaly A and anomaly B uh, under the under the sphinx. We'll come back to the the, the uh, sphinx and uh, what's well, underneath that. Yeah, I, wait, just go back to that diagram. This one. Um, yeah, that was what. That's what you had published, wasn't it, Marnie? It was in your book. No, this is, okay, for the the proper citation for this figure is Thomas Dubecki, Robert Schock, which is in the, you can see it in the, in, in the caption. They published this figure in 1992, and I asked Robert for permission to reproduce this image in my book, Under the Sphinx, and I obtained permission to do so. 
Um, this paper is published, so it's accessible in the public realm. What it shows is basically the void map that they generated using seismic uh, uh, tomography. And mm -hmm, the particular yeah. area that Gary is referring to is is square B. That's uh, where the head, the neck meets the shoulder. And what Gary is saying, this, that particular point, yeah. yes, if you connect that point to Peniston Giza, <clears throat> you you have a distance of a processionally significant number, 2,160 feet. And it projects out to San Miguel. Okay. Yeah, it goes all the way to San Miguel in, um, in, the, in the Azores. There's seven islands that are grouped together, but there's nine in total. You know, you've got two other islands that go more to the west. But, um, yeah, it's pointed to the Azores. And as we know, I mean, I'm there getting ahead go. of myself probably here. Yeah. This figure, so, this figure uh, uh, Gary, we also have to explain, we have to, this is proper housekeeping. So if you can go mm -hmm. back real quick to Mark Lehner's figure, uh, Joe, the one that the, the second Sphinx, yes, this is a figure, pick, this is a figure from Mark Lehner, but Gary has modified this figure with these boxes, A and B and the red lines and the black line. That's not part of Mark Lehner's figure. I just wanted to make sure that you understand that. Okay. Yeah. And you can see the distance there. I, I give the distance of the line there, which is those, as I said, those three processional numbers in the British Imperial measurement system. I mean, whoever devised the code cleverly used the, you know, that distance to just tell us this is no coincidence. This is intended, you know. And um, it's, as you can see, it's pointing to void anomaly B. Um, so, and, and, and that's the line, that line that's being pointed from the Giza coordinates found in the code. When you go back in the opposite direction, it goes all the way to San Miguel. And I think that's the next slide, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, well actually, that shows you, that shows you, going, the one before that, that, that shows you the same line, the same heading line going back in the opposite direction. Yeah. And, it's, and the, you can see that the Giza coordinates found in the code are anchoring that line. It's anchoring that line. You know, giving you the positioning of it. Okay. So you you trace that back, and it goes partly through Spain, and then it ends up at the Azores. So what made yeah. you think of going to, like, tracing it to the Azores? Well, it's just an intuitive step. I just thought, yeah, okay, you've got the Sphinx, and you know that the thing is that that line, that line is the path of the sun, on the evening of the summer solstice, and it's where the sun sets. It, it sets between the two pyramids. Mm -hmm. So the Giza coordinates from the code, it gives you a, it's, it's not, as I said, a nondescript location. It's actually on that line of the sun setting in the, setting in the west. And it sets in the Azores. And then you think, well, okay, there, there's a lot of belief or people that speculate that the, um, the, the Azores location is the original Atlantis I, because I, I think the islands are the peaks. Gary, isn't that isn't the length of that line of some significance that has to do with the cubit number? Yes, yeah, it I is. Think, I think I it's... think that's what we have to say first, right, Joe? So the the first answer to your question is not intuition and all that. It's it's factual. Again, the code is 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 giving you a distance. The reason why it ends it ends in San Miguel and not before or after that is because that distance is is significant. It has a significant again numerical association with Giza, and that has to do with the cubit number. Right? I mean, Gary, is that correct? Is there's is a fifty two thirty six something, right? Yeah, it's five. It's five two three six kilometers. Yes. 
That's um, right. Mm-hmm. But that is 10 million royal cubits. Yes. Okay. So that in itself, again, and the other thing about the code is it keeps giving us the uh, royal cubit length, you know, in different ways. And this is just one of them. So that, that whole distance is significant. It's, it's 10, actually 10 million royal cubits. It's 5236 uh, kilometers. And um, the other thing is, and I think it might be in the, in the next slide. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just going to Sao Miguel. It shows you Sao Miguel Island. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you can see all the measurements there, and I, and I think anybody who watches this interview will be able to see those measurements there, which is from Google Earth. All those measurements there. So um, kilometers, centimeters, and feet. Yeah, and I think was it yeah. the feet distance is seventeen. Seventeen. Uh, yeah. Now, that feet distance is significant also, because I think if you times that by 2160, um, which is the distance between the Giza coordinates and the Sphinx, if you times that by 2160, that feet distance, then you get the number 7953, okay? And if you go to the next slide, You can see that the distance between the Giza coordinates and the Sphinx is one seven nine five three. The distance, the full distance, and that number seven nine five three is in the public domain because uh, there's a lot of textbooks uh, from the eighteen hundreds, and I think even before that, um, textbooks saying that the uh, diameter of the Earth was seven nine five three miles. Okay, so there's there's so a lot of numbers here, number, and I'm trying to figure out. So you're saying this is a, sure. this is a kind of an important number, the seven nine Yeah, so so that section of the heading line between the Giza coordinates and the Sphinx is actually one seven nine five three the full distance, and that number is in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was already in the public domain. So whoever devised this code has used that actual um, number. For that it's because Joe, it's because that number times the golden ratio gives you Earth's diameter in kilometer. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's that's the significance of that number. So yeah. so see, there's a theme here, right? So we first we have the NASCAR line that gives you that has a certain mile numerical mile distance to the Giza plateau, and that that number has a significance because of the phi ratio as it relates to. Uh, earth diameter and then here we have the same theme again we have this ratio now and we have a significant distance that relates to the qubit so this is how the code talks to us it's talking to us in headings it's talking to us in long distances across the globe that nevertheless have numerical significances those significances could be expressed in any one of the three metrics so far that we've looked at so either the the meter system or the imperial system or the Egyptian uh, cubit system, so 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 we you know so you collect all this 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 style of language that the code is talking to you, and you learn the language, and then more and more becomes apparent. So I think yeah. Gary, this is important that you point out these themes, right? Because, so that mm. these are not just isolated observations. This is all connected in in terms of a language that the code is yeah. talking. Yeah. Yeah. It's what it is, is that, yeah, I've made intuitive steps, but it was all kind of um, uh, concluded with these mathematical 
significant distances. Yeah, that, that you know that this is beyond just coincidence. It's not by chance. It's you can see it's been devised and and it's cleverly it's been devised. And it, and mm -hmm. what we get, what the takeaway from this is, is that Manu's book where he talks about um, a hidden cache of records that was deposited under the Sphinx. Um, which is being pointed to by the Giza coordinates. And when you, and by this line, that when you go into the opposite direction, go straight to the Azores. Um, as I said, it's as if it's telling us, and this mm -hmm. is speculation, but it's the kind of, it's just a logical answer to this, is that it's telling us that the, the Sphinx, the legacy is from this place in the Atlantic. Okay. So, um... you know, the, are there any, so the cache of records may be yeah. the cache of records that was deposited under the Sphinx, which is information may have originated in that place in the Atlantic. So I think maybe we could move on to talking a bit about this potential hall of records. I don't know if there's any slides that are worth keep showing. Well, or I think we Manu, Manu will, will give you that because of his book. He's, he's got a tremendous book there. It's, uh, should, I should I, it. is there, should I do a screen share? Yeah. If, if you've got any any material to hand, but um, in yeah, I'd like to yeah talk about that, I mean, and also um, yeah, anything you have knowledge that may have happened more recently with regards to any um new discoveries there. So I know yeah, that recently they've make discovered some new stuff in uh, in the pyramids. So yeah, I yeah, just want to me... make a point. I just uh -huh. want to make a point before Manu shows you what he's got there. Um, just to say and make it clear that. This uh, Sphinx Azores connection that's come out of the code is just one of many themes that's come out of the code. Mm -hmm. You know, it's telling us that, but it's telling us a whole lot of other things as well, which we're not even talking about today. We're just concentrating on this one aspect mm -hmm. of the code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. So this is how you know Gary's and my interests are converging a little bit because yeah. I've looked at uh, the written evidence for. The, the uh, an older Sphinx and in association with that, if there was some written records that may have been kept under the Sphinx, so this is how I came at it. And then Gary recently also, you know, he's seeing the data pointing him to the statue. And this, so the statue, this the Sphinx is key to to um, both the Peniston code de uh, decipher and also to my work. So in but in a nutshell, to give you an idea, so I was looking for written records that predate the old kingdom that could give us a clue about an archive and so what i found is not a a, a a room or a chamber that has bookshelves on it it's not the hall of records or like a library like people might imagine but what i found is actually uh written references to a portable archive so this is a box that had handles or something like that it was carried around and in that box were what was special information that was privy only to the king and his scribes um so that that is actually fairly well documented in uh egyptian written records and what i'm so, talking so when about when you say the old when you say the old kingdom do you mean like first dynasty kind of uh third fourth fifth and sixth okay yeah so right. but you can take this back to the first dynasty actually that is where actually where most of these records are in the first dynasty so we're talking at the at the beginning of Egyptian civilization, you know, after Narmer, even Narmer himself, to at his time, we also be, we begin to see 
the lion is as a symbol, uh, as a guardian uh, of uh, a royal bureaucratic shrine, where basically the royal scribes were sitting and they were accounting for the king's uh, taxes for uh, you know shipments that came to the royal household that were delivered to to his future grave um, and for you know his consumption all of those things so these shipments were basically sealed with uh, this iconography of a sitting lion and this is more, more significantly a lioness actually not a male but a female lion sitting in front of a an a, an animal like shrine and that shrine is associated with the royal scribes that iconography with time changes. It becomes more um, stylized as you go to the Old Kingdom. And then you see this lioness now with one bent rod sitting over her back. Um, so when I got into this field in 2017, I thought this could be an opener. I, I interpreted this to be a physical object. And I thought this is a key, and which makes that lioness a building. And so I proposed this to Shock and Boval, and we wrote a paper about it. And then as research went on, I was actually able to find a potential translation. Um, and uh, and then um, uh, and we realized that this symbol is not an Egyptian hieroglyph, but it comes from the northern uh, part of Egypt before it was conquered by Narmer, had some relation to Sumerian. And through that link, I was able to translate this as actual opener. So the, the idea that was a key and the actual translation that I found are actually very closely aligned. Um. Anyway, so this is the this is the okay. written record. So there was re records of an older sphinx, and in this particular case, we think there was a lioness called Behit. Um, we I found evidence of a portable archive, and in under the sphinx, uh, the way the the whole mystery begins is actually with a piece of art that shows the heliocentric solar system. Um, that piece of painting comes from a tomb, uh, from a coffin. Uh, we know for a fact that the ancient Egyptians did not know that the sun is in the center because they uh, thought that the world is in the in the center and everything is rotating around Earth. Right. Um, so, so, so the, to them, this would have been anachronistic information. But nevertheless, there it is. We have a painting, and if there's an inscription around the painting, there's a there's coffin text, and when you put all of this together, uh, you realize that this shows the sun in the center, surrounded by nine planets. Um, so there you have a paradox. And so my my conclusion in the book is that this must have come from this portable archive. And that portable archive ultimately was stored in Giza sometime before Kafre. Now, for obvious reasons, I can't take this all the way back to 10,000 BC, like Robert Schock did, like Graham Hancock did, like Robert mm -hmm. Bouval. They used geological evidence, astronomical evidence. Um, but the written, because the written records only go back about 5,000 years. So all I can say is that the evidence that I am seeing is there was a, that the there was a monument before Kafre. It was a lioness. Her name was Mehit. And she guarded an archive that was not a library, but a portable ark, just like the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the items that may have been, and the type of information that I think was in this portable archive was astronomical. It had to do with astronomy. Mm -hmm. um, Bouval and Hancock famously proposed, as you know, late 90s, that procession may have been this type of knowledge. They believe that the entire Giza plateau is basically a processional clock. And the mm -hmm. Sphinx is the quintessential icon of procession because it stares due east 
where you know one way to define precession is by looking at the constellation that rises on the equinox. Okay. And so that's the connection with precession. And so when Gary is saying that uh, the code is also talking about uh, processional time, then that's the connection. The Sphinx is not just uh, a key to the fine structure constant, which helps to authenticate the code, but it's also a key to precession. And uh, the processional timeline that's encoded at the Giza Plateau and finally, it's also the aim of the code besides the Azores. So Gary is establishing this connection between the archipelago and the statue. And so what we're beginning to wonder now is that's where our evidence is converging, that I think there's something under the Sphinx. And Gary's saying the Peniston Code is telling us, look under the Sphinx. There's something mm -hmm. there that we need in order to be able to solve some kind of problem because if we don't, then something will happen in 8100 AD that prompted the sender to send that message. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so and, and um, it's also it's also yeah. referenced in the Azores as perhaps being where this the the origin, the original place where this cache may have come from, this information that's been deposited under the Sphinx. Manu actually in his book, he goes on to mention um uh, the the cachet of records were most likely breached you know uh, just before the first dynasty wasn't it Manu? yeah it had to be breached because otherwise that painting wouldn't have been leaking yeah. into the funerary art of the middle kingdom in uh in al -Barche. you know i have to imagine yeah. joe there's a middle egypt uh, is you know we're talking something like two three hundred kilometers south of, of cairo there's a there's a a mountain cemetery 4,000 years old, and the, the officials from that area, which is the city of Thoth, this is the the, the city that was uh, dedicated to the moon god. And in, in one of those tombs, you find a coffin, and that's where this painting is. Mm -hmm. We also know that the local library was called, was called the House of Life. This is the most important library in ancient Egypt at that time, uh, because it was obviously dedicated to Thoth. And that information must have come from that library, but ultimately that information came from Giza. And I tracked this whole, I tracked that in the book, the evidence for it. So that means the, the archive guarded by the statue must have been breached, which is what Gary was just uh, reminding us of. And so the archive was breached, the content was moved to Middle Egypt, and then it was kept at the House of Life. And at some point that information was leaked by the scribes to the, the local high officials and one of those was the general zeppi and he ended up getting this unusual painting painted onto the headboard of his coffin and we've also discussed haven't we manu that because of the timing of this breach which was before the first dynasty or, or the, the event of the first dynasty um it, it's likely or it, it's possible that the information that was found in that archive may have kickstarted the the ancient Egyptian civilization. That's right. Potentially, uh, yes, because there's actually a written record, Joe. It's a it's a bone tag. There's three symbols on it, and what the three symbols say it says opening of the place of the aftet. The aftet is the word for this archive, this ark. Uh, that bone tag was found in the grave of the third king of Egypt. Horus Jer. Mm -hmm. 
So we're talking 2950 BC. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is that is the that is the youngest point of time that this could be referring to. So okay. when Gary's saying, could this have been breached before the opening of the archive? Could that have happened at that time or before that time? We don't know. Um, but it is striking that you have you have these bone tags were important because the king, um, the the king scribe, they were basically referring to certain years, not by numbers like we do, but they refer to certain years by important events that happened in the king's reign. Okay, that's how they marked a year, and so, so this particular year was marked in this way that an yeah. archive was opened. So these um these events that you talk of this this breach. Are these things that are in in the sort of academic record, or are they? Yes, sort of... yes, okay. they are. Yes, yeah. So these aren't refuted at all by by academia in any way. That uh, or is this symbology as well is that something that? Uh, is... So a straightforward translation. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the it's. I mean, I have it in my book, but I'm not obviously not the one who discovered this tag. This was actually found by Flinders Petrie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the references are in my book. You can easily go to Petrie's publication look up the look up the tag and there there are these three symbols you can look at any egyptian dictionary you can translate the symbols it's straightforward but the the archive translation this is the that was not so straightforward um the translation of that last symbol to to mean archive that actually comes from an egyptologist he's excellent his name is wail sherbini he published a book in 2017 about the coffin text about a specific segment of the coffin text called the book of two ways and in that book of two ways this particular symbol is mentioned six times out of a total number of 17 the prior translators for the prior hundred years had a huge problem translating this particular symbol which is the which is the word for arc for portable archive mm -hmm. but sherbini did an amazing job detective work he figured it out it's very convincing. And so I am actually referring to an Egyptologist. And so I, I'm not translating this on my own. I refer to an Egyptologist when I say that that symbol stands for a portable archive. Okay. And uh, do you feel like that there is a potentially a void underneath the Sphinx and underneath the left paw uh, that we haven't discovered? Or have we recently discovered anything there of note? Uh, yes. So I think uh, I th I actually think this is a natural cavern. According to Dubecki and Shock, it the void has sharp corners, has orthogonal corners. So they think it's man-made. Whichever way, um, I reviewed all the the three experiments with. Uh, I I have a, a a team of three people. We're currently looking at another way to visualize this void using satellite radar. And so we had a meeting a couple of months ago and uh, together with the geophysicist, and we reviewed all the pre-existing data, including shocks data, seismic refraction, tomography, uh, including uh, electric conductivity, which was done by, um, by uh, Stanford Research Institute in the 70s, including uh, gravitometry, uh, gravitometry, which was done by the Japanese group, Waseda University. So we looked at all the data um, mm -hmm. And the final conclusion is that, yes, we think there is a void there. It's not just poor stone or decayed stone. There is an actual space there. But of course, you know, Joe, you know what I, I'm just going back to what I said at the beginning. In science, you, you, make a, you make a 
testable prediction and then you have to do the experiment so the experiment is obviously to drill a hole and visualize to see if you're correct okay that's how you do it but that hasn't been done as yet as you know no not not as far as i know no i have there is a possibility that it was done and it was hidden Mm-hmm. It's always possible. There is a potential area where I think it may have been done, but at the end of the day, I have no evidence for uh, for or against it at this point. Okay. So really, to wrap this up, it's just what's going on here is that what Manu has been doing, what he's been finding, what he's been researching, you know, it's all in his book. Um, this uh, code that's that originated with a UFO UAP incident is probably the most well-documented documented case in UFO military history. Yeah. It's provided this code that actually points to the things that Manu has been working on over the last and, several and, years. And Robert Schock and Mark Lee. Yeah, <laughs> and course, I mean, I'm just, yeah. I'm just one of many. I'm, you know, I'm at the, yeah. the, 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 the thing, the way I'm approaching is from, is from writing. Um, but yeah. of course, you know, it's been looked at by many others. But yeah, but it's, you know, you stand on the shoulder of giants and I truly stand on the shoulder of giants. You know, I had yeah. the pleasure and honor to work with Robert Schock on a few publications. You know, he's fantastic. Um, yeah. And other researchers as well. Robert Bouval, as you know, the astronomy of Giza with Graham Hancock, message of the Sphinx. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, and you look at both sides. You look at the Egyptologists themselves. Mark Lehner's publication on the Sphinx. It's an amazing read. I highly recommend it, his thesis. It's a great way to get an introduction to the fine details of the Great Sphinx. And is that, am I right in thinking that there's um, a theory that the, the Sphinx may have had a lion's head on top originally and may have been built at the time of Leo um, as per the procession? Is that so if we see, we have theory? fairly convincing proof that it was a lioness, not a lion. So yeah, and Robert Schock is on board with that. So this yeah. is our this is our combined paper, 2017, where we concluded that this was not a male lion, but a female lion, okay. a lioness. I thought and as her, well. And, you mentioned the second Sphinx as well. Did you earlier? Well, we 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 and so her name was Mehit. Yeah. Regarding a second Sphinx, I I I. There, there is. We we know from Arab historians that there was a Sphinx across the Nile. Uh, uh, that that is mentioned. Yes, so you can look up Macrizi. He refers to prior historians that refer to a Sphinx that was dismantled, and then the blocks were used to build mosques in Cairo. So we know there was a second Sphinx across the, the Nile. Now, whether or not there is a Sphinx like uh, in the Acre, Aker uh, iconography, where you have two conjoined Sphinxes, right? Um, whether or not that's a real monument, so there's a second Sphinx, I don't know. There is a there's a rock formation that belongs to the quarry from which Kafre quarried his stones for his pyramid. It's called GCF one. That name comes from Glenn Dash, who did a survey in that area in, in the entire plateau. So he named this particular rock island GCF one. That rock island looks sort of like something that you might think is a yardang from which the ancient Egyptians could have made a Sphinx. And based on that, some people have gone to Giza, they've made YouTube videos, and they're saying, look, there's the second Sphinx, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there's another, there's other people that have proposed there is a second Sphinx behind the Great Pyramid in the northwest corner of the Giza Plateau. I have never seen any proof of this, but there are some people that think there is a second Sphinx buried under there. Mm-hmm. Then there's yet another segment of the, 
alternative historian camp that believes there's a second sphinx behind the Khafre pyramid. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, so I've looked at all of these things. I have never seen Joe. I have never seen any proof that there is a second sphinx, but that doesn't mean that there isn't one. It's just okay. that I'm not personally aware of any second statue like that. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, going back to Atlantis and the theories that um, I'm sure you're fully aware of, of this idea of an ancient uh, advanced civilization that may have got wiped out during a, a huge flood um, 11,000 years ago. What, what's, I guess, firstly, what your views are on that? And, and can you tell me if there is any more um, growth in the academic circles for this theory um, now compared to years ago when, when it was proposed? Is that for, for you, for Gary or for me? Uh, for both of you. Yeah. I, Gary, I, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to say that what the code is showing us as well is showing us this processional timeline at Giza. Mm -hmm. um, and it begins at 10460 BC and ends in 2500 AD, which is in our future, of course. And um, so this processional timeline, um, and it, it gives us uh, what I would think are cataclysm dates in that timeline. Mm -hmm. so, when, so when you talk about an advanced civilization, maybe this is what all this is leading to and it's pointing to the Azores. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, there, there are theories that the Azores was the original location of Atlantis and that the islands of um, uh, the Azores are the peak peaks of the mountains that mm -hmm. are submerged, you know. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues. I've, I've also heard that. of um, a theory about have you heard of the Rikart structure in, in Western Sahara? Yeah. 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 yeah I, I mean, have. yeah, that, that is also starting to gain some momentum in terms of potential theory and which are in, and as well it links to plato's ideas of what atlantis looked yeah. like so yeah there's well, there's we, issues we don't know fully, do we? yeah it's a it's speculation and there's issues mm. with all these locations that they think was atlantis i mean even with the azores all i'm saying is and i never really wanted to use the word Atlant that you know the name atlantis um because I'm just going, I'm just following what the code is telling mm -hmm. us. I'm just following, you know, the area, you know, what it's saying. And it's, it points to the Azores in several different ways. You know, it's this, what we've been talking about today with the, the Sphinx and that line that goes all the way to San Miguel, that's only one reference to the Azores. There's a few more that the code is giving us. So, you know, you just have to conclude that that's what they're telling us, that the Azores is important okay. and may have something to do with, this adv uh, advanced civilization, uh, lost, you know, civilization. You're talking not a bad about. place for a holiday as well. <laughs> no, it isn't actually. No. <laughs> you, um, oh, you mean the, the wanna... you mean the Ricard yeah. structure? Uh, the Azores. Yeah, no, talking about the Azores. <laughs> yeah, the Azores. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was actually. Also, yeah. I I was almost. I am. I almost went to Mauritania next month. I cancelled the trip, but I I was going to go, and visit the Ricard structure. Okay. It's not easy to get there, and you have to have, yeah. you know, you need to have probably uh, somebody from, you know, the capital going with you. So you, I, it's, I don't think you can just go on your own. It's no. safer if you take somebody with you. But okay, yes. yeah, it's quite uh, fascinating. To, if you wanted to uh, come back and talk about that, if you ever went, mm -hmm. it'd be be interesting to yeah. to see yeah. what you think because the, the theory is it was a geological um, anomaly right. rather than being um, some something yeah. more. Right. The problem, the problem, this actually illustrates the Atlantis problem pretty well, the recut structure, because 
there is a it it is possible that the you know the Atlantis story is just a saga. It's something that mm -hmm. um is it was inspired by something that was but was seen and then it somehow got back to Plato and he he created a fiction out of it. So and if you read Graham Hancock's uh, Magician of the Gods, he actually gets into this. So he's saying that if you, obviously he believes that there was a, a, a civilization back then and it was destroyed and you could call it Atlantis. Um, and he's using Plato, of course, as as the evidence for it because he's the one who mentions it first. Um, but just so you see what the problem is, you ask about the, the other side of the aisle. They are not on board with this because they think the whole story is invented. They think it's completely fictional. Mm -hmm. um, and so... And so Graham mentions this also in Magicians of the Gods, that there are other researchers that have tried to first prove that Plato did not just invent the story, but that he got inspired by, by, uh, by Egypt, by Egypt's uh, histor his historians. And that's, of course, what, uh, what we learn in Timaeus and Critias is that Solon is the one who transmitted the story to uh, uh you know, it came it came to Plato through several through several steps, but ultimately it came from Solon. And so the first step is, if you wanted to if you wanted to take up academia on this, is the first step would be to first prove that Plato did not freely invent a story, so it's not a noble lie, but that he truly got this story from Egypt. So where would you look in Egypt? And so what Graham did, he looked at the Edfu building texts. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of it, but the Edfu Temple is is an amazing megalithic book uh, mm -hmm. with uh, it's just a vast amount of text. Um, it was written during Ptolemaic Egypt, and part of the Edfu text there's a creation story. And when you look at interpretations from the 60s um, by uh, the Egyptologist Eve Raymond, she published a book about the uh, myth of Horus at the Edfu Temple. And this is the book that Graham Hancock and Gary knows that book. He has the book yeah. himself, mm -hmm. and and Graham used that interpretation to distill out the idea that the Atlantis story is mentioned in the Edfu creation story. And if that is the case, then of course we have proof that in fact Plato did not invent the story, but he got it from Egypt. So that's the first step. Once you mm -hmm. once you can prove that Plato got the story truly from Egypt, then the next step is to ask, well, where is is that story that the, did the Egyptians refer to a real place, Atlantis? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the logical sequence you have to take if you want to convince academicians, or you find archaeological find, um, relics, um, either in the Azores or the Rickard structure, and something that basically dates to 12,000 years ago, mm -hmm. um, that you can then call Atlantean remnants. So... I think it's fascinating that the, the code, this code that's from a UFO UAP incident, um, is yeah, kind so of do assist, I. assisting us, assisting us in making these mm -hmm. steps, you know. Of, and I think it's timely now that, you know, that people say, oh, why did Jim Pennison sit on this code for 30 years, you know, before he came forward and, and uh, mentioned these ones and zeros that he wrote down in his notebook? Why did he wait for 30 years? But then, as I said, as we was talking earlier, mm. um, you know, a lot of the, the tools and, and programs and mapping programs that you would need to decipher the code properly 
could, was only made available in the, at the end in 2018. Um, and so him waiting 30 years before he came forward with it, it was kind of timely. It's, it, it, and then it's, then he sent the coordinates to me and all this information come from the coordinates and it's taken another 12 years or, well, no, it's 2018, but it is 12 years since I started work on the code. And um, I wouldn't, as I said, I would have needed all those pro programs, tools and mapping programs to be able to decipher it properly. Yeah. And really, it, the thing is, is that it is timely because it's only now, really, with what Manu's, with Manu's work and the book he's published yeah. and, and all the information that he's come to, it all connects right now. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that yeah, I am, I am future, flabber, I'm flabbergasted yeah. why the UFO community is not looking at the Peniston Code more seriously, Joe. I, I don't get it. This is way more significant than they're making this out to be. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're looking at they're looking at uh, government videos and uh, personal stories of abductions and all of that stuff, which is fine. Um, but at the end of the day, this is the Peniston Code appears to that piece to be a bridge between what they've always been interested in. They've always been interested in ancient history because they thought the aliens made the pyramids, whatever. But now they have a code that's pointing you to Giza. And that says that it's coming from another intelligence. And in this case, it's coming from the future. So that brings up a whole nother set of possible explanations for the UFO phenomenon, right? It could be simulated. It is, it is bizarre as well that um, yeah. of all the UFO incidents, uh, Roswell gets a lot of notoriety, but Rendlesham is less less known. Yeah. But actually, I don't get it. In, in terms of actual number of sightings and how long it takes mm -hmm. it's a it's a far bigger case uh yeah harder to yeah, refute, i think that you know, so. i think there should be somebody to tell the ufo community right to stop being so insular mm -hmm. and you know everybody not just worrying about their own publications and books and and start working together as a group and you know, just what scholars do right scholars collaborate they bounce each other's offers. But see, in the UFO community, it seems like, you know, I mean, there's absolutely no reason why what Gary is finding, it should be ignored by by radio hosts, by podcasters, by discussion groups, by conferences. He should be invited to contact in the desert. I don't understand why he wasn't invited. You know, so this well, we is actually just... was. We actually were at one time. We were invited. Me and Jim Pennison were invited, but we turned it down. Uh, yeah, but this year, but but point. this year you're yeah. not invited, right? Uh, are are you right. going to yeah. that, Manu? Yeah, I am. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think That's you were there last, last year. Yeah, yeah. And um, slightly connected to the whole um, the UFO community and recent events, I wondered if I could get your thoughts a little bit on this recent. Well, actually, actually it's probably about a month ago now. The Balloon Gate saga with these, the Chinese balloon, and then the various uh, anomalous sightings. What? What's your take on on that? Is it? Uh, I watched the video. Mosaic, or I watched the video with Ryan Graves, mm -hmm. and uh, I think his his how he how he looks at it, his his viewpoint, I think is just spot on. Really, um, he doesn't know what he was saying. Is he doesn't know what they are, and and I just want to say that this code, okay, the intelligence behind it. We really don't know what that intelligence is. I can't say it's extraterrestrial. I mean, I don't really subscribe to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Um, you know, all we can say is that this intelligence is not um, restricted by the laws of our temporal spatial reality. That's all we can say. 
because it's predicting something that none of us could have ever known or predicted. Uh, so it's all about time. It's, an, it's the, the code is a time anomaly, you know, a temporal anomaly. Um, so when we're talking about this, these balloons, I'm, I'm kind of weary about the whole UFO subject and in general, really, um, because these incidents are happening, but we still haven't got a clue where, you know, what, what is behind it or, you know, the, what the intelligence is behind it all. And I don't really leap on the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and neither does Jim Penniston. All we can say is we just don't know. We just don't know. When you say that, you know, do you mean re referring to the Rendlesham incident or in general, overall, um, all these cases, Roswell, the 1952 incident, um, Virginia? Overall. Overall, overall okay. I mean, the, the Rendlesham incident, I mean, you know, it could have been extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. um, but what the, the craft that Jim, the unidentified craft of unknown origin that Jim touched, that he examined, he went around and he wrote this information in his notebook. Um, it, you know, it was a it was a drone because he says it wasn't. It didn't didn't seem it was it was manned or had any kind of creature pilot in it. It was it was a drone. Um, how do we know that? You know, in the future, it may come from the future, and it was sent back into the past during an incident that they were kind of monitoring, an alien sort of extraterrestrial incident that they were just sent back into the past to monitor, to, to, to see what was going on. You see, there's all these kind of theories about it. So we just don't know. We just don't know. But this code, as I said, it's a temporal anomaly and it's, it's been devised by someone or something. It's more likely to, have be, to be a sophisticated quantum computer in the future. You know, that's kind of created this. Okay. Um, we talked. We talked about Amway Manu, but it could be something like that. Yeah, but, I, I regarding the balloons, Joe. I, the, my takeaway is that that there is no at this point. I don't see any effort to to remove this conflation between. Uh, government initiated activities and something that may be paranormal mm. there's some there's this mixing between these two activities that that bothers me about this field but you never know is this intended is this misinformation or is this actually a real phenomenon mm -hmm. um, mm. on, the, on the flip side it seems like the governments are interested in studying paranormal activities at least they put some money into it for a while and then when they realize that nothing comes out of it then they abandon it um, so that means that they're at least interested in it. Uh, but um, I, the, at face value, those balloons were man-made. I don't think those are UFOs. Um, and this is just a military, this has to do with military intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, though, that the news media, at some point, they were talking about unidentified objects. So this, this is the part that where I, it's a little bit, uh, suspicious for me that now all of a sudden we're starting to conflate a military uh, <clears throat> uh, a military project with with something that is from the from the UFO realm yeah right? yeah and so this more is, or less that, that, that was the oddest thing for me is um in a in a world where there's a lot of potential evidence of UFOs out there being ignored by the media 
that's right. And we're saying, why aren't you focusing on this? And then as soon as the media focuses on something, just because of the, the way I've been watching the whole world go for the last uh, however many years, you kind of, the first thing I'm thinking of, the media's talking about it, so it must be prosaic. <laughs> it kind of That's like, right. there's almost like an about yeah. face between the two worlds. You know, everyone who right. was um, saying UFOs are just, you know, planes, birds or whatever, suddenly they were like, oh, what is this? Whereas I was sitting mm. there thinking, oh, it's just it's prosaic. It might even be all orchestrated, made up almost right. to to create to create a narrative, which is often right. happens a sort of false flag. I think uh, I don't do you know, Eric, uh, I forget his last name, Weinstein. Eric or Weinstein yeah, I used Weinstein, to follow him right. a lot. Um, yeah. When he was with Sam Harris and that kind of deep yeah. dark web he made, stuff. Yeah. He made an interesting comment. I, I've, I've been watching a couple of his interviews recently, and he said something very interesting the other day in an interview. He said that we are missing the physics for the UFO phenomenon. Yes. Yeah, it was with John uh, Rickman, was it? Yeah. He's saying, he, he's saying we have all the physicists on the on the conventional side, you know, they're, they're discovering all these amazing things, but the UFO community hasn't come up with a physicist to actually underpin the UFO phenomenon with alternative physics theories, right? That could explain uh, anti-gravity and appearing, disappearing out of dimensions, right? There's, there, it's missing, and he he thinks this is suspicious, that this is making him suspicious that it's not a real phenomenon. Then on the flip side, he said something else that was also interesting. He's saying that um, there is a place in, I believe, on the East Coast, and maybe New Jersey, there's a university. It's not that well known, but that is a hotbed for the world's top physicists that would be qualified to discover these kind of things. And he's saying that um, what you would Just excuse expect... Me. Just excuse me for a little bit. No uh, problem. He, what he was saying is that what you would expect if this was a secret program, like these physicists are not publishing anything because it's secret research, then they should all graduate, go to go to a certain place where you have a lot of these people meeting, and then you never hear anything about them again because because the research is secret, right? Um, so I think he's onto something on both ends. I think he's got the right feel for for the type of evidence that we need to see, um, you know, to something that follows up on what. Uh, um, what's the man that uh, was working in Area 51? I forget his name now. Bob Lazar. Uh, Bob Lazar, yeah. So, so it, somebody has to take the Bob Lazar observ uh, account <laughs> to the next level. In other words, put the physics under what Bob Lazar says he saw. Yes. And we don't see that. We don't yes, see papers it, coming out that it's explain. Not just, it's not just the phenomenon, but um, there does seem to be a history uh, going back all the way to to post Second World War of um, discoveries made by people that could be called free energy, could be called anti-gravity, that mm -hmm. somehow just get quashed or put into patents and bought and then yeah. just seem to disappear. Right. And we don't seem to, unless you go and find out about this stuff, you don't you don't know about it. You don't get taught about it in school. It's not sort of in academia at all. Yes. And it is strange why why that is, and also. Now that these things are starting to come out, why it isn't gaining momentum? Surely right. there should be someone, a scientist, even if it does sound maybe conspiracy conspiracy theory like. If you someone says maybe there is an anti gravity, uh, a way of doing anti gravity in a, a variety of means, and it's actually relatively straightforward, you'd think right. someone would want to 
start discovering it or be interested in it but the i don't hear the momentum within the sciences scientific community to to try and find these or or even free energy i mean that would solve a lot of the world's problems yes um yeah on the flip on the the other side renewable energy you know that that's right yeah so this is if we're dealing with the real universe but the uh, the other part of that the other the flip side of the coin is, is simulation that i see i see more weight going in that direction because we do have that we do have a possible confluence between physics and simulation when it comes to the holographic principle, for example. Mm-hmm. That right, Hill yeah. of holographic principle says that you, the information encoded, the information that encodes our gravity experience, our spatial time experience, is actually in another place. It would be like as if we are inside it's of a black hole. And Hawking, the kind of the two D yeah. space encodes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. So that, because if we are in a simulated universe, a lot of these things can be much more easily explained, including time travel, including UFOs. All of this can be explained by uh, some kind of simulator who's basically playing tricks on us to test <laughs> us. How how are yeah. we reacting in a simulated universe? Um, so when it comes when when I go to contact in the desert in three months, I am going. One of my talks is about simulating a sphinx in the pyramid of unas using text and topography uh so i'm not saying that of course i'm not saying that uh you know the pyramid of unas is a simulated pyramid i'm saying is that the concept of simulation was amazingly put into practice by the ancient egyptians not by using zeros and ones like we see in a matrix but by using special a special language called heka invocation and topography and architecture is brilliantly done and mm-hmm. the goal of the presentation is to show you that the antechamber is basically an architectural representation of the great sphinx including i should ask i should add the void where the ca- the cavern where the archive is housed that's even that is simulated in the okay. pyramid text and it so makes you would... wonder where they got that knowledge from where they got yes. that knowledge from yeah that's right so I, I, is this any any way connected to the kind of idea of um, the geometric unity, the sort of of uh, the sort of special geometry that we see encoding our world and universe? Is that connected to this hacker you were talking about? Was that? Well, it's it's very it's actually pretty straightforward. So imagine you're in a room that has nothing in it; it's just four walls. And let's say you want to simulate a window, so you're going to take a piece of paper and write "window" on it and just paste it on the wall, and you're saying, "I want to." I'm simulating a window where this word is written. And amazingly, to give you an example, this is what we find in the antechamber of Unas. Because um, if you've ever been in the Great Pyramid, when you walk into the king chamber, mm-hmm. you are walking under this gigantic granite stone. Uh, it's huge. It's uh, something like six cubits uh, in width or seven cubits. And as you know, there's a shaft that Robert Bouval thought was a star shaft. And so, uh, and others before him. Uh, and so if if you go now to Unas and you walk into the antechamber, there's almost exactly an exactly sized uh, gra- uh, stone that is over your head. And then if you take the proportion, but there's no shaft, obviously, in the Pyramid of Unas, however... If you divide that stone into the same proportions as in the king chamber of Khufu, where their shaft is, you find a text reference to a launch path. 
uh, uh, open a path for Una spirit to go through. It's amazing. So this is actually a classical example of a textual topographic simulation, right? So you basically, you, you're not using, you're not drilling an actual shaft. You're basically proportionally uh, identifying the same spot in a different building. And then you write in that area, open a path for a canal mm -hmm. to open up, well, something it, like it that. It sort of yeah. lends itself to the idea that um, consciousness is primary and consciousness is creating the reality. And this material world is a, a product of the consciousness. And exactly. that kind of, <laughs> it's kind of where my mind went when you were describing that in terms of That's right. um, the ability to create a shaft in the pyramid through through vocabulary and thinking. That's right. Consciousness. Okay. Yes. Fascinating. And so by I'm the so same wondering... token, so yeah. by the same token, there's a sphinx there and there's a cavern in front of the left forepaw. This is all invocated uh, textually. Um, and Unas has to traverse this cavern in order to be able to go to the sky. So he's 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 done everything that you're supposed to. He resurrected his spirit. He's unified his spirit. Mm -hmm. He's learned how to speak the language of creation. And now he's in that cavern where the primordial gods, he has to appease them. When he comes out of this cavern, he goes into the sky. That cavern is mentioned in the in the north in the northeast corner of the antechamber. And the northeast corner is in our reconstruction where the left forepaw of the Sphinx is, where the cavern is, the void is, and where the Hall of Records is. Mm -hmm. Where the words of God, you know, in, in Edgar Casey in the Edgar Casey's um uh uh language, that is where the Akashic records are stored. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just want to write that the uh when I was talking about the Giza coordinates, so that line, that heading line from the Giza coordinates to the left forepaw of the Sphinx, where, where the shoulder, you know, it meets the shoulder, uh, being anomaly B, that actually ends on a latitude that is exactly 820 royal cubits from the latitude that passes through the center of the Great Pyramid. So it's actually 820 royal cubits south of the Great Pyramid center. Um, yes. And that's and that that's significant as well, isn't it, Manu? Because uh, that is what is it? The uh, yeah, the eighty-second eight, yeah. This eight, is eight how spoon. right the eighty-second column in the in the in the sarcophagus chamber on the north wall. It, there's three registers. Each registers each has fifty-five columns. So if you and you pass the first register up high, and then you go to the middle one, twenty-seven columns. So it's fifty-five plus twenty-seven. That's 82. And in the middle of that column, you see a cryptic reference to the lioness with the with the jaw sign. But of course, we're now in the time of Unas when we have a great sphinx. At that point, the lioness was taboo, no longer mentioned. There's no mm -hmm. reference to the great sphinx as far as we know, no overt reference for over a thousand years until the new kingdom. And that, that in and of itself is highly suspicious. But in the 82nd column, which is that why that number is important, the one that Gary's mentioning, you see this uh, you see this reference to the line. And now if you take that web space on the left forepaw in front of the Great Sphinx and you draw a line to that web space and then you project the, um, vertically to the Great Pyramid, you, you have 10 times that number 82. So this is just one of the several numerical bridges between the pyramid of unas and mm. the, the great pyramid 
there's several of these things and that's one of them the one that gary's mentioning okay yeah i think um we're running a little bit out of time i wonder if i could ask you um both of you a final sort of question about where you think this this story um is going to be going in the next i don't know year two years ten years in terms of um how how what role it will play in what could be disclosure <laughs> yeah i i think it's this code is something that has to be accepted you know there's going to be a tipping point at some time that people are going to be looking into this and then they'll find that a lot of what's going on now is already in the code it's already it's pointing to things what, mm -hmm. what emerged from the code is pointing to things that were happening in real time as i was deciphering it so these times are important, what we're in right now. And this is why the, it's taken all this time for the code to be deciphered, which originated in 1980. It's taken all this time because it points to things that are happening right now. And um, I think what Manu is, is engaged in uh, uh, with the Sphinx and the scanning of the Sphinx to find this cache, uh, this, sorry, this uh, uh, cave or, or, I don't know, chamber underneath the Sphinx is all part of this. Yeah, it's it's just really really weird that this code is pointing to things that are happening now and uh, it's, it's assisting us with information. It's making these bridges between you know these different kind of data sets and uh, yeah, and I know that Manu is is you know he is associated with the code. His work is associated with it. Um, I think we could end. Manu, on the on the points that you made that you sent um, to Joe, maybe could you read some of those out? I don't know. Just to end, just to show, you know, just yeah. give us some. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, the message to the UFO community, Joe, is to not argue with Jim Peniston, but to put the code to a test, to look that look at this scientifically, look at the predictions that the code is making and and doing the experiment, but unify. And do this all together instead of you know heckling and you know because it's it's a pity. This is um, you know to answer what you're saying, what you're asking for, Gary. This is probably one of the most significant pieces of evidence for an intelligence other than our own. If it's yeah. if if the code can be authenticated, that's the first thing. This is more yeah. significant than seeing lights in the sky. This is more significant than seeing some grainy video with some kind of supposed ship from another civilization out there from another galaxy this is more significant because it's an intelligent message um the second thing is uh the provenance of this code jim peniston he, he's credentialed military man uh so at surface value at least you should give him the benefit of doubt and not immediately assuming that he made this up because it's highly in, un, un implausible for him to create something like this but in any case, you don't have to take his word for it. The code stands on its own feet. It's giving you all the tools to uh, prove to you that it's real. And so people should take a look at it at least and see if Gary has discovered the the, the way that it authenticates itself. Um, the second mission of the code, which we haven't talked too much today about, but that is the processional timeline that it's sending, that it's appeared to be sending us to, to, to against the Giza Plateau. And then the third thing is to to uh it's giving it's telling us the azores matter it's telling us the sphinx matter so what the ufo committee should be doing is to come up with a way to put this code to a test in san miguel and under the sphinx mm -hmm. so 
my part in this is to work on providing yet another way to non-invasively see if we can prove a space in that location. And so this is what I'm currently working on. If mm -hmm. I, we, we made some progress. If something will come out of this, I might be able to publish this by the end of the year, maybe early next year. Okay. And that will tip the scale because then we'll have a fourth modality that shows us that there's a real space there. Yeah, I'm going to just add that the skeptics or pseudo-skeptics, you know, the critics against Jim Penison, when they mention the notebook and they mention all these issues, they've all mostly been explained in the book I wrote with Jim Penison, but they still keep coming out with all that stuff to try and discredit him and the code. Really, <clears throat> um, even if they were right, even if they were right about Jim Penison, how would they explain this 12-digit number that it predicted in the future? And yes. Which something is just something no one could have known, no one right. could have predicted. That is a paradox that they right. have to get around. So all the he said, she said stuff, you know, what the right. uh, with the witnesses are they trying to all discredit each other, trying to be the go-to guy on the rendition incident? It's all made irrelevant, all made irrelevant by that code, by what right. how the code authenticates itself. Right. That's what yeah, they should the, be. I mean. These are, these are supposedly, the UFO community is the most out-of-the-box group of thinkers. And yeah. here they here they are totally in the box, coming up with, yeah. you know, all these petty little criticisms of the code when they should be looking at the big picture and, yeah. you know, looking at this scientifically, which is what our own government does. Our own government pursues paranormal phenomenon in a scientific manner. Yeah. And that's what the UFO community should be doing. Yeah, I will. I will say that um, I have noticed, certainly of late, a uh, a slight um, increase in the amount of, um, I guess, issues within the UFO community, and I think sometimes the frustrations get to people as they're sort of waiting for things to materialize, and they sort of eating each other alive a little bit, and it's a bit of a shame. Yeah. So, um, mm -hmm. my podcast is up the vibe, and it's trying to stop. If you can change your frequency and uh, raise your vibration, and and look more to the future in 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 a more positive way. So hopefully we can right. get get beyond these um, petty quarrels mm -hmm. and he said she said moments and yeah. and just and see that there's there's more to discover. This is exciting times and it's it's going to be it's going to be a really important future. And I I don't, I don't prescribe the doom and gloom aspects to some of the some of the UFO community, right. but you never know. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah this, uh, this code, it, it hmm. levels the playing field. It levels the playing field. No one person is important in the Reynoldsham incident. You know, I had a witness that all trying to outdo each other. Yeah. Um, Jim Penniston and I, I mean, Jim Penniston knows this. He said it's not about any one person. Hmm. It's about the code and what it's telling us, and that's what they should be concentrating on. And also trying to figure out what the intelligence is behind it, you know, who hmm. or what you know right okay so so if you were to say what would what would you say is it is it a future human et other well jack safari you know we talked about it before in the last interview we did um i i know him i mean you know we go back to 1999 um in communication and that and he says his theory is that it's uh post-human ai hybrid from the future okay. yeah you mentioned right. that yeah I agree. Yeah, I think this is an artificially intelligent uh, yeah. quantum computer. Yeah, I think okay. so too. Okay, fair enough. Anything else?
no no that's uh that's been uh it's a good way to maybe maybe end this now and uh say th- thank you for uh, your time and for your amazing information ability to recall such such information manu and Gra- gary it's been uh been yeah. great so thank you again thank Thanks. you take care bye thank you